0: You know, we take for granted how easy it is for us to get information from one place to another. It's instantaneous. It wasn't always that way, though. But see, it's so instantaneous that when I was in Indonesia, 10,000 miles away, I was riding in a little taxi cab, and I was able to live stream with no Wi-Fi or anything like that, live stream the countryside in the middle of Indonesia, 10,000 miles away. That's that's insane to me. It doesn't make any sense. I didn't even have to pay like $10,000 for the month to be able to do that. It was on my normal cellular data plan. And it's so easy for us to get information from one place to another today. It hasn't always been that way, though. During the time of the uh, American Revolution, it would take two or three months to get from like Boston to London, a letter. And it hasn't always been that easy. But messages are powerful things. It's a a powerful thing to be able to convey an idea to somebody else. CNN reports that in 1956, a man by the name of Ake Viking was a lonely Swedish sailor who decided to place his search for love in the hands of fate. He wrote a simple letter And he titled it to someone beautiful and far away. And he corked it inside a bottle and tossed it overboard in hopes that it might help him find a young woman one day to marry. Well, two years later, in 1958, he was surprised to receive a letter from a Sicilian girl, Paulina. And she answered it and said, look, I'm not beautiful. But it seems miraculous that this little bottle should have traveled so far and long to reach me that I must send you an answer. The two began to write back and forth. And three years after he threw that bottle into the sea, Ake moved to Sicily to marry his long-distance love. Messages are powerful, and this is an amazing story. And if you are looking for someone, I recommend this is the best way to do it, right? (laughs) But this is an amazing story. But how much more amazing is it that we have a love letter written by the God of the universe that has passed through thousands and thousands of years through 40 different authors to end up in our hands today. It's such an amazing thing. Last week we looked at the overwhelming evidence that we have for the resurrection. And that same Jesus that raised himself from the dead loved scripture and he quoted it often and he spoke new words of God while on this earth. And then he said, these apostles that I have trained are about to give you more of God's word. And they finished writing the books of the Bible. See, this Bible is his story. And every story has an introduction. And this one starts with these three words. Say it with me. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning. Right off the bat, he answers the most deep question that we have in our life. Where did I come from? Here's the beginning. This is how it started. In the beginning, there was God. He is the hero. He was always there. He will always be there. We came from God. He created us. That's where I came from. Next, this story answers the other great question that we have. Who am I? Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. We are the offspring of God, formed and fashioned in the way that he wanted us to be. He wants us to look like him made to look like our father. We are God's creation. He also answers another big question that we have is, what is my purpose? Our purpose is that we were made for the glory of God and for his pleasure. We are made to please and honor and worship him with our whole entire lives. Way back in the beginning, in just the first few chapters of God's word, We learn that his story is our story. Our stories are intertwined. And God was happy with all that he created. It was good. And things were good. Now, we don't know how long it was good before the next big event, but we do know that Adam and Eve worked in the garden and they walked with God and they were happy. But there were two special trees in the garden. There was the tree of life. And then the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Often we skip right to what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is. But what is that tree of life? We actually see the tree of life mentioned throughout all of scripture. All the way to the last book of Revelation. Adam and Eve were allowed to eat of this tree. It was a special tree that signified God's presence with them. And then Adam and Eve, when they were removed from the garden, there was separation between them and God's presence. That was a sad day, but God wasn't finished with us yet. This same presence comes later to Abraham in the form of a burning bush. And God makes a covenant or a partnership between him and Israel to let his presence be among the people again. And this happens for thousands and thousands of years. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And the way you get to experience presence with God is through me by connecting with me. This is how you get to experience that tree of life again. And then Jesus was hung on a cross and died on a tree for each of us. But this was no surprise. Jesus had told his disciples that he would be planted in the sea uh, in the ground like a seed, but he would rise again. John 12, 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. See, through Jesus, we're invited to eat of the tree of life again, to never hunger or thirst again, to go back to Eden, to restore that separation. And not only that, we're meant to produce his fruits of his spirit as well. And Revelation tells us that the tree of life sits in the center of this new creation that will come. And it has 12 different fruits that grow on it, one for every month of the year. And we look forward to this day when we get to experience the fruits of God's presence that will never get old. And this is the tree of life, right? But what is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, this tree is the manifestation of us choosing our way over God's way. And when we disobey God, it breaks relationships. God told them not to eat of this tree, but they chose their way and broke their relationship with God. And that's what happened, right? When Adam and Eve chose to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it broke the relationship with God. And as sinful people, they can no longer dwell in the presence of God. And every time we choose to do things our way over God's way, we choose to eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that tree leads to shame and guilt and death. Every idol that the Israelites bowed down to was a manifestation of that tree. Every time they choose to uh, stay in the wilderness rather than obey God and go into the promised land. Every time they knew or they believed that they knew a better way and chose their way, they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They thought that they knew better. And we think that we know better. But Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we can only come into the presence of God and find joy through him. This is his story. Now, Genesis tells us that before they chose to disobey God, that Adam and Eve were naked. It says they were naked, but they felt no shame. Now I'm not down for the naked part, right? But feeling no shame sounds amazing, doesn't it? Right? I feel shame with my clothes on. But before the fall, these people knew exactly where they came from. They knew exactly who they were and they knew exactly what their purpose was. No insecurity, no confusion, no feeling lost and empty. They understood that they were loved and valued. They had nothing between them and God. There was no reason for guilt or shame. But now the world is so confused. They're confused about the where and the what and the who. And sin has broken us. Brody Jesperson says that Genesis is the introduction, the Garden of Eden, harmony and perfection. The protagonist is God and the antagonist is Satan. Satan is the embodiment of sin. An angel that had everything that he needed, but chose to believe that he deserved to be worshipped like God. Isaiah tells us this story of Satan in Isaiah 12, 20, or Excuse me, 12.12. 12. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How are you cut to the ground? Who laid the nations low? This is what it says. It says, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. This is the snake in the garden. The one that believes his own lies that he is better than God. And we see this same lie believed by people throughout the Bible. That their way is better than God's way. And Cain thinks he knows better, right? He thinks he knows a better way to worship uh, than God does. So he does it differently. The people at the Tower of Babel thought that they could build a tower to be like God. Pharaoh thought that he could disobey God and be okay. Nebuchadnezzar II, uh, the king of Babylon, thought he was worthy to be bowed down to and worshipped. Herod let people believe that uh, when he spoke, it was the voice of God. And in each and every one of these circumstances, God set the record straight on who was really in charge. But see, Satan is the father of lies, and he is always the villain in the background, the one pulling people's hearts to follow their flesh. But he is not all-powerful, and he is not omnipresent. And no, he is not the opposite of God. He is a cheap imitation. But the serpent... In Genesis, is the dragon in Revelation. And in the beginning, he told Adam and Eve that they could be like God. You won't die. Eat of the fruit. Disobey God. God is keeping you from something that is good. At the end of the book, it's the same line. Man doesn't need God. They know what they're doing. Eat of the fruits of sin. God is keeping you from something good. See, sin has broken everything. And in this grand story that is his story that we call the Bible, this is the conflict. They ate of the fruit, and shame and guilt and death and pain and disease entered the scene. And ever since, we have eaten of that fruit as well. They hid from God, and they blamed each other, and things were never the same. God gave us the freedom to choose to love him. And over and over again, we've chosen to love lesser things and rejected him. And this is the fall of man. Now, Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, the tensions are rising and the separation is still there. And God gives Israel direction and leaders and guidance. And he forgives them and saves his people of Israel over and over again. And he gives them the tabernacle and the promised land and the temple and judges and kings. All with an effort to have his presence dwell with them again. But judges were ignored and the kings were corrupt. And even the priests turned worship and perverted worship into a way that they could gain from it financially. And then Israel was exiled finally. From the land that God had given them because of their sin. And as time races forward, Israel seems to fall further and further away from God. Everyone just does what's right in their own eyes. And the separation gets wider and wider between God and his people. And by the time you get to Nahum and Hosea and all the other minor prophets, it's clear that something big has to change. Read those books of the Bible. It's depressing. Where is God? These people are left to wonder if they will ever feel the presence of God again. But we saw in the book of Habakkuk just a few weeks ago, That even when God is silent, he is still working. And even when it looks like evil is winning, God ultimately will get the victory. We just have to wait for it and live by faith and have hope. The Old Testament is written in many different styles. History, poetry, narrative, wisdom, and prophecy. But it's all telling the same overarching story. It's building towards something. It's laying the groundwork for something beautiful. See, you can't fully understand the gospel and the hopelessness of man and what to do when God is silent and the futility of trying to get to God on your own without the Old Testament. That's the story of the beginning half of the book. It's man trying to keep it together. But by the end of the Old Testament, it was clear that God wasn't present, but he was still working behind the scenes, leading and orchestrating everything. I just finished reading the book Lamentations. It's these mournings and grief of the prophet Jeremiah as he realizes that all is lost for his country. They were suffering the consequences of their sin. There's only five chapters in this book, and they almost exclusively read like this in uh, Lamentations 3, verse 16. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. It's really uplifting stuff, right? You don't see that verse stitched on pillows too often. But even in the midst of this gut-wrenching grief, Jeremiah still says phrases like this, I will hope in you. Great is thy faithfulness. Your love never ceases, and your mercies never come to an end. uh, Jeremiah is reminding himself that pain is only temporary, but the love of God is eternal. God is love. Now, sometimes we suffer the consequences of our sin and even the effects of sin on the world. But God is always behind the wheel. He is not. Surprised. But then at the end of the book of Malachi, for 400 years, God stopped speaking altogether. Complete and total radio silence. They call this the intertestamental period. It's between Malachi and the Gospels, the Old Testament and The New Testament. And for 400 years, that silence had to be deafening. Hope had to be a distant memory. God was silent until suddenly he was louder and clearer than he had ever been before. He broke the silence in a way that no one would have ever imagined. And that's where we pick up next week. Sin breaks everything. God longs for us to dwell in His presence. He wants you to know this morning who made you and who you are and what your purpose is. And it starts and ends with our Father God. We have this love letter from Him and it's passed through thousands of years to get to you. Fall in love. With the Bible, because his story is our story. Very heads bowed and eyes closed. Messages are important, and God. Orchestrated a lot of events to get this book called the Bible in your hands. And this story is the most amazing story ever. It gives us hope. It shows us how often God has run after his people. It shows the great lengths our holy God has gone to show his mercy to us. We don't deserve it. The fact that he went so far for us does not at all show how important we are. It shows how amazing he is. He loves us because we're his creation. But it's all for his glory. It's all for his honor. It's all for his pleasure. God placed an importance on us. We bring nothing to the table. But God ran after us anyway. His last year and a half has been a lot of waiting, a lot of confusion. There's even been times where we begin to start cannibalizing each other. Tearing each other down because we're unhappy. And I believe much of it has to do because we don't remember who we are. We don't remember why we're here. We don't remember what our purpose is. Who we are is we are created in the image of God. All people, even that person that you hate, even that person that rubs you the wrong way, even that person that you disagree with, that person is made in the image of God. We don't remember where we come from in the beginning, God. We come from Him. We don't remember what our purpose is to glorify and to lift up the name of the Heavenly Father. Not to magnify ourselves, but to magnify Him. There's many ways that we can do that. We can do that through loving our family fiercely. We can do that uh, in forgiving our enemy when they don't deserve it. Loving our neighbor that might not ever uh, reciprocate that love to us. Working uh, diligently at our job and and, and not complaining about the boss. And There's so many ways that we can live and glorify God. Telling others about Christ. Serving someone. Even as simple as handing out a glass of water. Remember who you are. Remember why you're here. Remember what your purpose is. And the more that we do that, the more that we're going to look like our creator. And the more that our witness is going to make a difference. Heavenly Father, God, we love you. We lift your name up. God, I pray you center ourselves on these truths. Help us to remember our identity is in you. And our purpose is to glorify you with our lives, God. Help us to look at the places in us that don't glorify you. The the people that we need to forgive, the, the places that we need to step out and help. God, change us. Make us new.